0: Draft Dialogue on Writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Elisa Chappelle, author of two short story collections with linked narratives titled Use Me and Blueprint for Building Better Girls. She was a senior editor at the Paris Review and is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. She is the co-founder of the literary magazine Tin House. She lives in Brooklyn with her family. We began the discussion talking about her linked stories in blueprints for building better girls. The stories have recurring female characters who deal with issues such as drugs, eating disorders, date rape, and bad reputations. Chappelle's characters move from girlhood to womanhood with vulnerability amidst the raw and realistic things that can befall females. We began discussing the title of the book— how she came up with it, and how it unifies all the stories in the collection.
1: I chose that title because years ago I was in a writing workshop with uh, an instructor who criticized my stories because she said that she felt that, um, or her suggestion was that they lacked a moral core. She said that, um, I don't understand what it is with you new little ladies in fiction today. Like Mary Gates Gillen, someone else, and by that point, I had was partially like starting to black out because I was so enamored of this woman, and I really thought she was going to save me and my writing. Uh, and she said, "You know, don't you realize you have a moral responsibility to create stories that will um, serve as blueprints for future generations of young women?" And I, I just that just gobsmacked me. I thought I didn't think that I had any. Obligation to anyone except to tell the truth and, and be interesting. When if you start thinking about stories as being prescriptive or instructive, I, I think you've just killed that that spark, the spark of creativity. That that's not what uh, that's not what artists do. And as I started writing, I started realizing that so many of the stories really were written in reaction to. Um, to to the kind of messages that etiquette books give women. And I, I collect etiquette books. I love etiquette books. I always have. Um but they're not they, they, they're they don't they don't really suit women. I mean they or, or anybody, you know, they're all about the perils that we might face as human beings. Um but it you know the sort of stuff is uh you know, what do I do if I go to a party And, you know, I forgot to wear white gloves or um, what do you do when your husband's boss comes over and you realize that, um, you know, he doesn't speak English. What I wanted to do is write a book that is um, more like what the you know, what is the proper decorum for a well-bred young lady who's been raped or do's and don'ts for mothers who are meeting new mommies in the park and uh, really just want to be drinking. That was what was interesting me more, or or how do we deal with um you know how do, how, how do you as a woman deal if uh, you know, if you are pregnant and you're married and you're no longer in love and you've had miscarriages, do you have the child? do you not have the child? so the, the the title is ironic.
0: Your stories cover tough subjects, women with bad reputations, date rapes. Mothers who prefer drinking over being at the playground with their kids, a lot of drugs, eating issues. The women are raw and tough, but also vulnerable. Can you talk about how you get this mixture on the page when highlighting these complex characters and difficult situations?
1: I think that a lot of the stories, in this may sound really kind of crazy, um, but are, are funny. You know, I really do. I think some of them are very funny. And there's a Oscar Wilde quote which I'm probably gonna mangle where he says, you know, if you want to tell people the truth, you better make them laugh, otherwise they'll they'll kill you. And so I think in order to really reflect the lives of women, you know, you have to be telling these tough truths. But you also for me I have to they have to be they have to be kind of funny and darkly funny and a lot of my characters they use humor as a way to defend themselves. They, they need to be funny because otherwise um, their reality would overwhelm them. So they make jokes. and so they uh, th- and sometimes the humor they're using is really, you know, sometimes it's being used as a shield and sometimes it's being used as a sword. So I don't know if that completely um, addresses the question, but I think that that is that's part of what I that's part of what I'm trying to do. There is to I, I think by by using the humor by you know using this kind of black humor I'm not only making some of this stuff palatable for the reader to read because again if you're going to tell them the truth you better make them laugh um, but it's a way to seduce them into following you if you you know if it's very clear to the reader hi I'm going to write a story about a, a young woman who is raped and the ramifications of this and the reverberations that that you know, travel through her friends and family. Who wants to read that? I don't want to read that. But if I feel like I'm going to read a story in which we're going to go into a dark place and the reader is going to make me laugh sometimes, I feel protected. I feel like, okay, it, she's not going to destroy me. Um, she's going to protect me. And so in that way, it's it's important to me to to make sure that the stories are kind of funny. And in that way they can be raw. In that way they can be really honest. And I don't think that I could tell the truth unless I was unless I was mining that that vein of of dark comedy.
0: In your story about the date rape, which is called Are You Comfortable, the victim's name is Charlotte, the story is interesting because she's friends with out of control party girls and she is a rule follower. So you would think they would be more likely to be the victims. Charlotte can't discuss what happened and doesn't tell any adults in her life. Can you talk about Charlotte's character?
1: Sure. Well, I think that's, um and that's a big deal for the party girl in that story. That her friend is raped and she's not because she feels guilty about that. And Charlotte is a nice Southern girl who goes to a party and makes the mistake of going home with a, a boy who um, is is a bad is a bad character. And she's one of those people, and I think a lot of us are like this, who really want to protect the people that we love from our lives. I think it's part of the reason I became a writer was because I had anger and ugliness that I wanted, didn't want anyone to know about or worry about me because I felt these things and I needed a place to dump it. And so for Charlotte, um, if, if you'll notice, that's the only story in the book that's written in the third person because I felt like Charlotte had already been violated. I didn't even want to get into her head. I didn't want to, to speak for her. And it was a really important story for me to read. You know, one in four women will be sexually assaulted, um, and 84% of them will be assaulted by someone that they know. So that was that was a really big story for me to write, and it was important for me to write it and have characters from other stories appear in that story, because I did want to show how something that is tragic um affects a group of people because it changes all of their relationships even though it didn't happen to them it changes the way they talk to each other it changes the way they look at her um it it changes the way that they 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 feel about themselves because what should i have done in this situation um how do i feel about wh- what happened to her is she in any way perhaps responsible for this everybody has some kind of relationship to her Uh, even just as a victim, there's a story in which she's just mentioned as like, oh, the girl, that that girl that was raped. And part of why I wanted to write about all these different women whose lives intersect, even just tangentially, is because I'm interested in the ways that we um, exist in other people's minds and imaginations, how other people see us, perceive us, because the book in large part is about we think we know this group of women. We see a woman, and we immediately judge her. We put her in the box of good girl, bad girl, good wife, bad wife, uh, slut. And for Charlotte, she just looks like a good girl who's got everything together. And in fact, she's a girl who has um, has suffered terribly. But she's putting a good face on it, and she's going out there. And you, She's the kind of person you would look at and think nothing bad has ever happened to her. But the fact is something terrible has happened to her and something so bad has happened to her that she can't even talk about it. And her family who love her know this happened, but they're all pretending like it didn't happen because it's so painful. They don't want her to suffer. We never want the people we love to suffer. And I think sometimes that's why we refuse to see some things that are very painful. And that's why in in the story, Are You Comfortable?, the only person that she can tell her story to is the one person who will forget it, who
2: is her grandfather, who is suffering from Alzheimer's. The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors into people's experiences.
2: And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial.
0: She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired.
2: We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can child-proof your
1: world, but you can't world-proof your child.
2: It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The ability for her to unleash her story on her senile grandfather is like, it's so telling about her own confidence in, in her own healing and ha- how she can find her voice again. It's like she's, she's basically testing her voice against a brick wall.
1: Right, and I feel like a little bit. That's what it's like sometimes to be a woman writing, or what it's like for me to be a woman writing sometimes. Which is, I have to tell you my story, um, and you don't want to hear my story, but I have to tell you. And when I sit down to write, I have to write as though I'm going to be perfectly understood by people. That everyone is going to understand that my intentions were pure, or that I'm just trying to, to you know, to to tell the truth. And you can't think about there being an audience. You can't think about anybody really listening to you, but you have to tell a story that really matters. And so I think for, I never thought about that before, but I think in a way that's exactly what Charlotte is doing. She's kind of doing exactly what I think as a writer I have to do, which is tell the story truthfully, perhaps uh, believing that no one will ever hear it. Or I often think about it as uh, small town radio no one is listening except for my friends and family.
0: So how much do you feel like your your process really and maybe this is true for all writers comes from the subconscious? I I I think, you know, when you can read a collection of stories, you get a better sense of someone's sensibility of the world. And when I was reading mm-hmm. your stories, I, I had this sense of of this obvious feminism that was coming along but there was also i had this sense that it was that the things that linked these stories wasn't intentional it was more subconscious
1: oh i'm so glad to hear you say that because i i that's exactly what i i want i really do i think you can sometimes see when someone has sat down and written something that's like i'm going to write a political story or i'm going to write um i'm going to write something that has a real message and that's not at all what i was doing i was just sitting down and like you say it is kind of just coming out of the subconscious it's born out of whatever it is that i believe you're obsessed with at the time or passionate with the time and you know at the time and i do think that writers have themes that we all repeat all constantly whether we're trying to or not i think a lot of times we're trying not to to repeat ourselves but we all have that big central wound where I think a lot of the work comes from if we're being really honest and open um, but I'm really happy that you didn't feel like there was anything that was um, that felt like I was using a shoehorn because I I really the stories weren't written like that and when people do that I immediately put a book down I, I you know they're I don't want to be lectured to I'm not interested in your politics I don't want to know about the writer at all I want to you know, to disappear into the work. Um, And for me, and this sounds goofy, but I do feel in some of those early drafts that what I'm really doing, especially in the first person stories, is I'm kind of taking dictation. It's like the writer, I mean, the, the character starts talking and I am writing down what they're saying and not thinking at all. And then when I go back and look at it, I can see the threads. I can see the subtext. But if I was consciously writing at that stage, it would be awful. It would be just. It would be just terrible. I'd be trying to sound smart. I'd be trying to um, to make uh, the work feel important. And I just. I don't think that that happens. I, I. I just. I just don't. I. I think that there's no revelation in that, and that's kind of what you're hoping will happen when you're writing. Um, but I don't think that that happens if you're being really intellectual about it. And again, I think that comes from that, like, write with your gut, don't write with your brain. You're you're smarter than you think you are, or, or trust that your story is smarter than you think you are. And, you know, you should be trusting when you go back and look at it, looking at the language, not not the ideas.
0: Can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: I think at least at this time in my life, the writer perhaps who is influencing me the most would be Grace Paley. And so there is this wonderful Grace Paley quote that was in the Paris Review where she said, It's not that you set out to oppose authority. In the act of writing, you simply do. Your job, your reason for writing is to uncover what the state and the conventions of your town normally hide. That's why you want to write, to tell what hasn't been told. And for me, I just I I thought, yep, there you go. And as we know, Grace Paley was a was a great activist. She really thought it was very important for people who have a platform to be really uh, responsible citizens and get the get the word out there to make our world a better place. And on top of that, she was writing these incredible stories, and you would never have thought that that she was someone who was out there necessarily stamping on the pavement, because the messages, the political messages are there, but they're not in your face. And she was a mother. Unlike her male counterparts, she wasn't putting out a new book every three years, but the books that she did put out are are just incredible. And they do have this strong political message underlying, underlying the, the fictions. And I guess that's really important to me as a writer, that I want my work to be very human and I want the fictive world that I'm creating to completely absorb you. But I do think that it's important that the work have some meaning and for me, because I'm a political person, I'm I'm always hopefully gonna have some kind of political message there. I, I think that the stories in blueprints for building better girls are 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 political stories i think they have a strong feminist message even though people say oh you're you know you're writing these stories about women that are so these women are so unattractive and unsympathetic and i think no these are really strong female characters and i feel like as a as a female artist that's what i want to that's what i want to do i want to tell the truth about real women's lives and grace paley certainly did that
0: can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that you found hard or tricky to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you're happy with.
1: That's that, uh, that's also something that I've thought a lot about because when I was thinking about something that had really changed a lot from the first draft, I thought, oh, my God, well, that would be most everything. There's a story in my first book, which is called Use Me, and it's a collection of linked stories that will not surprise you. And one of the stories or one of the through lines in all these stories is that there's a father who's dying of of cancer. And part of that was inspired by the fact that my own father uh, was sick with cancer on and off for 17 years. And I knew that I had to write a story where the father died. And I thought, oh, man, I just hate that kind of thing. I hate that sappy Um, you know, they're sitting in the hospital and a shaft of sunlight falls on the bed and it's like a ladder to heaven or something. And I thought, this is just not going to work for me. And I was upset about my dad dying. I mean, I was actually actively angry about my father dying. Uh, and again, because writing is the way that I process the world. When I got the call that my father was dying, I actually in the car was writing notes, taking actual notes as though like writing notes. Could keep my father alive, the way that people on airplanes feel like if they stop praying, the plane will fall from the sky. And I didn't think much about those notes at all later. I just felt like that was what you do when you're a writer, or that's at least what I do as a way to make living tolerable at times. So when I sat down to write the story, again, I thought, oh, no, I don't want to do this. And I remembered what my father used to say to me when he sat down with me to do my homework, which was a lot because he, I needed a lot of help with my homework. He used to say to me when I was faced with a big problem, okay, let's make an outline, let's try an outline, And it, and I just hated it. And so when I sat down to write this story, being very angry and full of some degree of hating the situation that I was in, I heard his voice saying, well, why don't you try an outline? And I was like, okay, yeah, great, daddy. Sure, I'll try an outline. And so I started to make an outline, an actual physical outline in which to tell the story. And that's the form that the, the story takes. So when I finished this story, I wrote it all in one big gulp. And I sat down, I wrote it probably in five or six hours straight through. As I'm writing it, I'm sobbing and feeling sick to my stomach. And I just kept telling myself, like, don't stop, don't stop, because I kept wanting to stop because it hurt. But I thought, you know, just go down, touch the bottom, like go down to the bottom of your grief. And like, once you go down there, it'll never hurt this much again. Like, just go, just go, just go. And actually, when I got up from writing the story, I, I went and threw up, which was quite intense. And uh, later, of course, I worried that, like, oh, my God, what if readers read this and it makes them throw up? That, that's not so good. So the way that I got into the story, though, which was a story I didn't... I knew intellectually I had to write, but emotionally I didn't feel ready to write. Begins like this. Number one, finding out. A, the phone call. Your father says, I have some bad news. You say, No. You're afraid of this bad news. You've heard bad news before, and it's never good. He says, I'm afraid so. You say, no, no, no. How long can you keep him at bay like this? Oh, honey, your mother says. Her voice is drunk on tears. Damn her, she always takes his side, always. Last time this happened, it was the same thing. What about that surgical cure? It's bad, he says. This is how he explained the very first bout of cancer to you 14 years ago. You were a kid. Bad meant not good. It did not mean death. How bad? You imagine some pain, some unhappiness, discomfort, but life. Still, you think you feel a small tear like fabric being ripped inside you. I'm probably going to die, your father says. It sounds like a bad movie written in English, translated into Chinese and then into pig Latin. It's already metastasized to my spine and who knows where else, he says. You know what that means. No, you say you've already tried this tactic. So that's how I got in. Um and when I'm reading it now, I'm thinking in some way I had to write it this way because it kept it at a distance from me and it made it feel like an exercise, writing it in the outline form. I think sometimes using a, a really obvious structure is the best way to handle really difficult material because it allows you to kind of back into it. But the second person too just now reminds me that One of my heroes, Lori Moore, wrote a book called Self-Help, and those are all stories written in the second person, which are supposed to be like advice.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write in my basement, and I actually write at the table that, when I was little, was our kitchen table.
0: What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I I don't think that writers can ever really entirely get away from writing. I guess when I want to get away from writing, what I really want to do is get away from my desk. So when I get away from my desk and don't want to be sitting there writing, what I do is I um, I make dioramas. I make these matchbox dioramas where, you know, I paint them and I build little scenes in them and sometimes uh, they have like little gears and stuff so they look a little bit like a toy. But mostly, what they are are these little dramas in a in a matchbox, and I get to play with a hot glue gun and tiny people, and uh, maybe in that way it is kind of like I'm still writing. <laughs> uh, maybe it's it's just like some horrible, uh, you know, my subconscious acting out in the matchbox. But that's what I do. I I make dioramas. I make stuff. I was raised that laziness is is a sin, so you constantly if you, if you're not working, you should be doing something that is creative or something that is productive.
2: Who
0: do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have actually three really good readers who are also writers. I have one who um, is Jenny of Phil, and she uh, she really goes in there and reads the work and always seems to know what it is that I'm really trying to do. She makes me feel smarter than I probably really am. She'll say, oh, this is good. Look at this message. Look at this subtext. And so she's very good for my head. Um, And my friend Rachel Urquhart, who is a novelist, will just cut stuff. She just comes in like a kamikaze, and it just takes stuff down to the bone. Uh, And then my third reader, who actually probably is the first one I go to, is my friend um, Eddie Villapique. And... He reads the work, and he reads the work so carefully, and he seems to know how to move stuff around, and he's so good at looking at the big picture. He's probably the smartest person I know. Just really good at standing back and looking at the landscape of the piece and saying, okay, like, what are we doing here? What are you doing there? And and that's incredibly useful. I, years ago, took a class with Allen Ginsberg at in graduate school, and he used to talk about how he would read his work through the eyes of various friends of his, and so one of those would be Burroughs, and another one of those would be Gregory Corso, and another one would be Jack Kerouac, and each one of these writers would um, be, be you know, give him another perspective on the work, and so I do think in before I show my work to my to my counsel. Uh, I am looking at it and thinking, well, what would Jenny think of this? What would Rachel think of this? What would Eddie think of this? And that's incredibly that, that's incredibly useful. I, I tell my students all the time, if you get nothing else from this MFA program, you will get a good reader, maybe two good readers, and they can help you more than any teacher can ever help you.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? Badly. No,
1: I, I how have I dealt with rejection? Um, I, in the beginning, I was really, really, really thin-skinned, and I'm still probably pretty thin-skinned. And when someone rejected me, I would think, well, you know what, they're probably smarter than me. They're probably right. For instance, with that writing teacher of mine, who I thought was going to love me and and told me I was a pox on uh, on all of literature. So I think what I do now, or no, I know what I do now is I think, you know what, how many people have you rejected, Elisa? How many people have you said, hmm, this isn't right for me? And and I think, okay, so it wasn't right for them. So there's somebody else out there who it, who it will be right for. I think also it helps having had work um, rejected at a magazine and having the next place that you send it to pick it up. You think, it's not over for me. Just because one person says no doesn't mean it's it's no for, you know, it's not no across the board. No isn't no necessarily when it comes to um when it comes to making art. There's going to be someone out there who accepts it. And sometimes the rejection can be really useful. Sometimes rejection can make you uh can double your can double your um conviction, right? It can be like, okay, well sure you rejected it, but I'm going to send it to someone else or I'm gonna get back in there and I'm gonna make it work. Other times it can really it can be incredibly um, damaging. It can it can lay you in bed for a long time. What matters is that you go back to work.
0: And what is your favorite word? My favorite
1: word. I love the word sublime. I think sublime is just a sublime word. It's it, the way that it it comes off your tongue is sublime. I like the idea that it's just this sort of wonderful, ineffable, feeling it's just it's I, I i i love the word sublime but i also i really like the word then because it suggests that there's no ending i have trouble with endings with things ending people ending relationships ending so that word then I
0: like that a lot. It just keeps the door open. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me was Elisa Chappelle, author of two short story collections with linked narratives titled Use Me and Blueprint for Building Better Girls. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.